Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners, including our colleagues at Tax Banter, Web Martin Consulting and Tax Ed to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Graham Prouse, Director of Web Martin Consulting. Graham, welcome to Tax Yak. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. Right, today we're going to have a yak about some interesting cases that have been coming across our radar. And a good one to start will be the, the recent decision of Aussie Golfer, or as many would be more familiar with the name, Domacom. And this is a, about a self-managed fund, and questions came before the federal and then subsequently the full federal court regarding the in-house asset rules and the sole purpose test. So maybe just for those listening, can we go through a quick refresher as to what the case involved and, and why this became to light in the first place? Sure, certainly can. So the fact situation here was that uh, there was a superannuation fund run by a certain Mr Benson uh, who was looking to buy some property, um, but he decided for reasons known probably only unto him that he wanted to go through Domicom. Now, Domicom was a, essentially a large managed investment scheme type of trust that you could buy widely available units to invest in real property. He didn't want to buy broadly into a portfolio of property. He wanted to buy into a particular property. So the negotiation that occurred and the facts that came out of it was that Domicom set up a sub-fund where Mr. Benson's superannuation fund subscribed for, well, is it a sub-fund or not? That's what the case in some ways is about. But uh, Mr. Benson's super fund bought units of a particular class. Uh, his mother also bought some units of that same class. And another super fund run by his sister and his brother-in-law also bought some units in that uh, so particular sub-fund. In other words, all of the units held in this sub-fund were basically controlled by his super fund, his sister super fund, and his mother. That's right. So he was 25%, his mum was 50 and his sister and her husband were the other 25%. Uh, so that sub, well, those, those particular units in a, some way were then ascribed to or linked to a particular physical property. Um, and the constitution of Domicom's uh, trust changed a bit over the years that are relevant for the case. So there was a lot of argument in the case about whether it was Clause A from 2015 or Clause B from 2017. So there's a lot of things in there uh, that are interesting, but probably not in a practical sense in terms of what our, you know, what what accountants in practice would, would need to sort of get into the detail of. But in any event, what happened was this property was uh, assigned in a, in a relationship to those units that Mr. Benson's fund had and then uh, listed with an agent so that tenants could be found. So for the 2016 year, broadly, a tenant was found and they paid an amount of rent. And these tenants are all students at student accommodation. That's right. So... Um, I picture these small flats that students live in these days near the large campuses around capital cities. Uh, I, I'm imagining it was one of those. So the the original tenant was there for a year. Uh, then a second tenant was was there for the the second year. Both Bingham. of those tenants were unrelated to to the family. Yes. Um, however, interestingly, the the second tenant's lease period ran broadly from January 2017 till about early February 18. In April 17, so well before the the unit was available to any other tenant, uh, Mr. Benson's daughter 
entered into a lease to be the next tenant. So her tenancy was supposed to start in February 2018, but she signed up for that in April 17. So So just on that point, Graham, just maybe a side observation. This was no coincidence that his daughter was put on the property. I, I get the sense this was quite a deliberate act to maybe test the proposition of what was possible here. Well, he's admitted it was a deliberate act. Um, yeah, part of the evidence that was led that was Mr Benson said to, uh, I can't recall whether it was the agent or whether it was someone from Domicom, but he said, I think I want to put the next tenant in as my daughter because we want to test some of these superannuation rules. Now, the two rules that were, were ended up being tested in the federal court uh, were the in-house asset rules and the sole purpose test. So remembering that, and I think it's a key thing that, the test was about whether those those two tests were applied and passed or failed as at April 2017. So 10 months before Mr Benson's daughter had any rights to occupy the property. It wasn't about a lease where she was physically in the property. It was about a lease that she was going to enter you know, use of the premises at but some point in the future. the lease had been entered into. But the lease had been entered into. It had been signed up um, and so it was all sort of locked in place in terms of the legalities of it. So the first question about the in-house asset rules, I don't think is really a a significant or an earth-shattering decision. You wouldn't regard that as controversial? No, no. The, the, the first part of it, the in-house asset rule, essentially revolved around whether the special class of units which related to the property were that or whether they were some other thing that just made them the same as every other unit that Domicom had across the broad range of properties that that the MIS had. Essentially, he was trying to argue that the sub-fund was part of the broader managed investment scheme. That's right. And it was not a related trust and therefore the investment in it by his fund could not be an in-house asset. Yeah, so if, if, if he'd won on that argument, the units that, that he and his mother and his sister had would have been such a small percentage of the overall is- units issued by Domacom that it wouldn't, they wouldn't be an in-house asset. You wouldn't have related parties owning 50% or greater than 50% of, of Domicom. So there was no way that the, the commissioner would have won had that argument have succeeded. But you know, the, the, the constitution showed and, the, and the, the full federal court decided that there were special rights around those units that related to that particular property. So those units were an in-house asset. And just to note that the investment by his self-managed fund in this sub-fund was 7.83%. So it's crucial that it's gone over that 5% threshold that makes it an in-house asset. Correct. So it would have been an in-house asset either way, but because the in-house asset is more than 5% of the ownership, of the, the fund assets, then uh, the, the super fund, once it is aware of that, has to go into the, the, the normal rules about a written plan to rectify the situation. And that rectification can't be just to bring it below 5%. The rectification has to be to sell the asset. Altogether. Altogether, mm. that's right. Bringing it back below five percent and hanging on to some is not going to get you there. So the outcome of I'll sell some of these units to my mum and I'll go from twenty five percent to maybe fifteen percent to get me under that five percent is not an option that's available to him or to his fund. Look, I think it's also notable that the federal court found that it was an in house asset. The full federal court on appeal has upheld that decision, so I think we can both agree that's not a controversial finding. But along the way, it was confirmed that the commissioner had the power to issue a determination to deem the investment to be an in-house asset in the event that it wasn't. 
Now, that ultimately wasn't necessary because the court found that it was an in-house asset, but it has confirmed the Commissioner's power to be able to deem an investment to be an in-house asset. Yeah, and that's that could be interesting. The Commissioner, I don't know of any situation where he's used that power as yet, but if he does... I think you would expect a raft of commentary and interest from anyone interested in superannuation or tax because it would be a power that's been there for many years but has never been used. So if the Commissioner starts to use that, then what would the context of that be? You know, what rights of, of appeal would the taxpayer have in relation to that? We're already in a position, and I don't know if you can change this, but we're already in a position of the Commissioner has more resources than any taxpayer. Now, he's in a position of being able to say, that he's got a view and it's a strong view and just the nature of, of, of the, our legal system to be able to go to court and have an argument to try and find out what the true answer is, is an expensive proposition. So he's got to be a little bit careful about how he uses these powers. And I know uh, that you know, the, the tax council network within the tax office do concern themselves with these things and do think about you know, whether they need to go forward on a particular area and use those sorts of powers. So. I, you know, I think that if he does use it, it would be a, a considered position and it may well be, you know, if it does happen, it's going to be one of these egregious situations where you go, well, there's no precedent value in that. Someone was playing a game. So yeah, it's not quite watch this space because it may never happen, but interesting. It's interesting in so let's move on from the in-house asset discussion and turn our attention to the sole purpose test. His daughter's living in the property owned by the sub fund in which his superannuation fund has an interest. So just to basically recap the two decisions, and then I'll throw over to you to get some comment on what you think about this. The federal court found at first instance that it did breach the sole purpose test. Mm. Now, you've explained that she wasn't an initial tenant. It was managed through a, an external housing body, and she was paying market rates. Notwithstanding all that, the federal court found it was a breach of the sole purpose test. This has been overturned on appeal by the full federal and they found for a variety of reasons, including those that I've mentioned, that this was not a problem under the sole purpose test. Hmm. Now, ultimately, the taxpayer has still had an adverse outcome because of the in-house asset rule, as we've discussed. But what implications does the full federal court decision have for people thinking, does this mean we can now put any related party into our self-managed fund property? And as long as we're paying market rent, we don't have a problem with the sole purpose test. How do we interpret this? Well, there's a theoretical position and there's a practical position here. Let's start with the theoretical, <laughs> then we can move to the practical. Yeah, so the theoretical position is that the full federal court has said if it's an arm's length dealing, notwithstanding your related parties, that an arm's length dealing is in line with what the intention of the sole purpose test is because this, the, the purpose for the trustees of the fund is to have enough funds to provide for the retirement of the members. Uh, so if an asset, whether it's a property asset or a share asset or some other asset, if the asset is earning a market return, then it's getting the return it needs to get in order to fund the retirement of, of the member or members. If that, and really it's saying that the section and the requirement is blind to whether it's a related party making that payment or it's a third party. And in some ways, there's an analogy here to the, the safe harbour rules that the Commissioner has in the limited recourse borrowing arrangement, where they say, well, if you meet these minimum terms for interest rate, term of rate, term of loan, all those, you know, frequency of payments, all those sorts of things, you know, gearing ratios, then the tax office is 
saying, well, that's really quasi-commercial because that's as close as, you, as the, they can really say that you, you are and they're not going to, uh, the, the tax office isn't going to have a go at taxpayers in that position because they're, they're making a genuine attempt to be you know, close enough to the pin in terms of uh, the, the, the market value of the, the situation. So that, that concept is in some ways, perhaps unconsciously, being used by the full federal court to say, well, if it's a market rate scenario, no one's being disadvantaged. No one's being advantaged nor disadvantaged. Yeah, you're not paying over market rent, so you're not stuffing the super fund with extra money that it shouldn't be getting. It's not depriving it of rent either. And so you're not supporting the relative of a member out of the super funds in a conceptual sense by not getting the return it deserves to get. Like you know, Mrs. Benson's daughter wasn't paying a lower than market rate to subsidise her cost of living as a student. She was paying the proper market rate. So what can we draw from this? Is well, it acceptable then? Well, in theory, as I say, the, uh, you know, it, it's an acceptable outcome. The difficulty is, as always, in the practice, how do you prove in a land of substantiation that is also a land of self-assessment, how do you substantiate that you've got a market number? You could go to a whole bunch of real estate agents and say, here's the numbers that we think is the market number, but arguably the tax office would then find because yeah, there's as many opinions as there are real estate agents. I imagine. Agreed. You're gonna. He's gonna be able to to find a different number. Now, on the facts of this particular case, there's a little bit of a surprise that that the sole purpose test was allowed because the rent that was paid by the first tenant in terms of the dollar rent was exactly the same that the second tenant paid, and exactly the same that Mr. Benson's daughter was signed up to pay. So across three years, there's no incrementing rent. Which of itself is not unheard of. It's not, but where you've got different parties and you know, this property was in a, in a market where the, the price of property is moving strongly, now, so the yields of property are dropping, I'm, I was surprised that there was no increase in rent at all and what it was still okay. normally do as a landlord is take the opportunity to increase the rent That's right. between tenants. So you would generally see renewals of, of leases, not particularly imposing large rent increases, but you would expect over a number of years that if you're changing tenants, that's your opportunity to increase it. That's right. The landlord goes to the real estate agent. And you know, this is a student accommodation, remember. So it's in. It's not a self-standing dwelling. It's It's... There's going to be units next door or upstairs or downstairs. There's comparative market rentals that are easy to find. So the tax office can use that to say, well, is it a market rate or is it not a market rate? And defeat your argument that it is a market rate if you haven't increased to market or you haven't made those inquiries. So I think practically, you know, you're, always, you're always in a position where you've got to not only all cases, you've got to prove the tax office is wrong and you've got to prove you're right. And I think that in Aussie Golfer, clearly they proved that the tax office was wrong in his view in, or the commissioner was wrong in his view in relation to the sole purpose test. I was a little surprised that they were able to convince the, the judges that they were right, notwithstanding that the rent just hadn't changed. So, look, it's an interesting case and there's been a, a lot of commentary on it. There um, has. Just to note, the case will not be appealed any further, so uh, there won't be a special legal application to the High Court, so the full Federal Court decision is where we land. Indeed. So if you're a practitioner whose client, you know, your client comes to you and says, oh, I've got this property in my super fund, I've signed up for a relative to use uh, the property, 
but they haven't moved in yet, then as a practitioner, are you going to say, well, Aussie Golf Court case says that you're okay or assuming you pass the in-house asset rule, so it's got to be an asset that's below 5% of the fund, or even if you, as the practitioner, say, stop, you shouldn't do that, it's more than 5%, it's going to be an in-house asset, we don't have a problem with sole purpose, but you've still got that in-house asset problem, you should tear up that lease. If that lease ever goes somewhere in the tax office, see it, notwithstanding that your relative has never moved in, on the facts of this case, you've still got a breach and you've got to sell the property. So, yeah, practically, like many other things in tax, you've got to keep an eye out to what your client's up to. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, well, let's turn our attention now to Sharp Can. So just by way of a preliminary comment, it is a Victorian case in that it revolves around the Victorian hotel laws and the um, the relevant licences to operate gaming machine entitlements. Um, that said, we've got a full federal court decision which has recently overturned a federal court decision. Uh, a brief summary, the federal court found that these uh, payments made to acquire gaming machine entitlements by a hotel were not deductible, and the full federal court has overturned this and found that indeed they are deductible. So that's a preliminary observation, but Graham, perhaps you could explain in more detail what's going on with this particular taxpayer and why this case is significant. Yeah, I think it's got some significance uh, for taxpayers other than just the ones that were affected. So it's it's got significance for more than just Victorian pubs and clubs and other venues that, that have uh, gaming machines. So the, the the briefly the background information is that for many many years Tabcorp and Tats had the duopoly of running poker machines in Victoria. Uh, in the early two thousands, the then Victorian government decided that that situation should end and that the operators or that the locations where the particular machines were, the owners or operators of those venues should have those licences. So there was a, a, an end date put on those licences and two years prior, which is in 2012, and two years prior to that end date, there was an auction held for every entity who wanted to have a gaming machine entitlement to make a bid for that. So there's a whole raft of rules around how many gaming machine entitlements could be in a particular area and how many you could bid for, and for-profit pubs had to pay a higher rate than not-for-profit clubs. So there was a lot of lot of detail in that. But key to the situation in Sharpcan is that the particular pub in question was a pub in Dalesford, and the owner of that pub took the view that... And so I've got to pause you there for our national listeners. Uh, Dalesford is a, a lovely township uh, northwest of Melbourne, not far from Ballarat. Indeed, indeed. In the in the wine country, if you Spa like. Spa country. Spa and wine country, yes. indeed. Um, so the, the particular pub in Dalesford, the owner of that pub took the view that he his business would be diminished if he did not continue to offer pokies. So he had a, a full service pub, if you like. So it had counter meals, it had games, it had some entertainment. Um, so those particular aspects of running a pub are complementary to each other. If someone's there to have a meal, they might watch a band or they might put a bed on or they might play you know, something in a, you know, play a few games with a poker machine. They might not do all of them, they might do some or others, but his view was that that integrated or comprehensive offering was something that drew custom. There was a competitor up the road, 
They were a club. They were going to get pokies after the auction was over. If he didn't have pokies, he thought he was going to lose custom and the value of his business was going to drop. There's a lot of analysis about the financial performance of the particular hotel and the, that showed that, or that in terms of the majority judgment, they took the view that without the pokies, that pub was going to be in a loss. So it really was, is it a viable business or not? So it went to the core of, of whether the, the, the pub was a, a going concern um, or whether it was going to fall over. So the, the, the publican behind the, the, uh, the operations took the view that he needed to buy uh, the 18 licences to replace the ones that he, uh, the machines that he had in order to be able to just make a dollar and pay off the debt that he, that he had in terms of having bought the pub and what have you. So this case is revolving around the tax treatment of those payments. That's right. So he, he set some rules around how much was the maximum he was going to pay and then he went into the auction or technically his wife was the bidder because of some other unrelated activities, but uh, the there was a cap on how much they were going to pay to, to buy the, the licences. They ended up buying 18 licences for about $600,000. And so the question was about what's the tax treatment of this, you know, this $600,000 had to be paid from 2010 through to about sometime in 2016 in quarterly payments. Uh, the licence runs ran from August 2012 and it expires in August 2022. So these are 10-year licences. So they're 10-year licences. Uh, interestingly, uh, those licences have just all been renewed. So the owners of such licences have recently to a large degree, signed up for another 10-year licence from 2022 to 2032. Um, so this issue is not just a historical interest. It's going to be and relevant. And it's not a one-off. And it's not a one-off because uh, there's going to be another 10-year licence after that. So it's an ongoing uh, situation. So the question before the court was, is it income or is it capital? You know, you've got an enduring right. It's going for 10 years. But you've got a right that is something that it replaces an existing situation. So there's no real change from a customer's perspective in terms of what the offering is and what the what the business does. Behind the customer, so I'm sitting here running the business, what fundamentally is this entitlement allowing me to do? I pay this money. We talk about the ability to trade for the next 10 years and to be able to run these gaming machines. Isn't this about the ability to generate an income stream in the future? And that's looking like capital, is it not? It, it does. It is. So under the rules as they were when Tabcorp and Tats had the uh, had the licences, the, the net return, so bets place, less payout is the net return, uh, or, or yeah, not bets really because it's a gaming machine, but uh, games played net of payouts uh, gives you a, a net return and the operator, w whether it was Tabcor or Tats, got that and they paid a percentage of that to the, the venue operator. So there was an income stream that each operator had out of which they paid for certain expenses in terms of make sure the machines worked and you know, there was some licensing rules about responsible gaming, I'm sure, um, and also they provided the staff and what have you to run those. After the change, then they got the whole of the net return, but they had a, a, an increased number of obligations, including paying the gaming tax that comes out of that net return to the Victorian state government. But uh, they were masters of their own destiny to some degree. Uh, but yeah, they've got 10-year licences and when, when such pubs are sold, those licences get sold and they get valued. And so uh, this particular pub was sold in, I think, 2015. And part of what the purchaser of it 
paid was for the fact that they had 18 gaming machine entitlements and that had a value. And so there was an amount paid for that, separate from the It's not in doubt the amount's been paid. It's not in doubt the amount's been incurred. It's not in doubt the amount relates to the, the carrying on of their business. To get this back on revenue account, what's necessary here? Because it's looking at a benefit, it's looking at a 10-year period that extends beyond the payment of these amounts. To get it back on revenue account and get the deduction, um, how was the taxpayer able to convince the full federal court that it was on revenue account? Well, what he did was the, the argument was really about we're not doing, we, we haven't expended this money to improve or increase the value of this business. We've expended this money as a defensive measure in order to preserve the business we've got. So it hasn't expanded our capacity to be a better business or a more profitable business, although that might happen if people put more money through gaming machines, but we've we've done it just to keep the business we've got. So to pause there, I'm playing devil's advocate here. If we're making a payment to preserve our existing structure, to preserve our ability to generate this income, why is that not capital? Well, I mean, there's a whole raft of examples you could use, but if you're running a pub and you don't pay your rent, you lose everything. You pay your rent's a deductible expense. So they tried to characterise the expense as being, well, it's a penny we've got to spend, but it's a penny we've got to get back out of our return on the machines in the same way that we would spend a penny to to have rent, to employ staff, to do those sorts of so things. So is this more akin to a licence fee or a permit or a That's right. an ability to be able to keep practising? Um, if you think of tax agent registration, for example, um, maybe a poor example, but yeah. we all pay our tax agent registrations and our membership fees to be able to continue doing what we're doing. Yeah. So is it akin to that type of an outgoing? In an analogical sense, uh, that is right. Yeah, you pay your tax agent registration board fees every three years. So it's not an annual fee, mm-hmm. but it is a recurring fee, but it's got some longevity to it. Yeah, three years is, is a reasonable sort of period of time. So they're trying to argue that it whilst it's a one-off number agreed to at the outset when the auction occurs, there's a benefit over the course of time. It's a diminishing benefit. It's just really getting use of something that we already had. Um, and as, as you said in the introduction on this particular case, they weren't successful in the original case, but they were successful on the appeal. So what do you take away from this case for our listeners? What is the impact of this decision? And, and is this a game changer or is this an expected outcome given the circumstances and, and facts of this case? In some ways, it's common sense because the alternative, that, which is what the commissioner argued, is that it's a capital asset. So you pay your $600,000 in this case and you've got a capital asset, which is what he argued, and at the end of the 10 years that expires and you've got a $600,000 capital loss. Then you buy the next 10-year licence, and let's say you pay 800000 then in 10 years from then you've got an $800,000 capital loss. So you've got a recurring expenditure for which you're getting no deduction. It makes running that sort of business that much more expensive. So in a practical sense, I think, I think it's the right outcome in terms of the the type of the expenditure because it's something that, that runs out and, and expires over time. So there's again, there's an analogy to a depreciating asset, notwithstanding this is an intangible entitlement, but there's an analogy you could make there. But it does open an enormous number of questions as to how this is going to go. So specific to the gaming entitlements, there's questions in relations to, well, it wasn't thought about at the time in the case, but do the prepayment rules apply because the eligible service period of a 10-year licence kind of indicates that you will get a deduction over the 10 years. 
all the all of the that the the case or the judges in the case would ask to consider was does eight one apply? And they said yes, it does. But they weren't asked and therefore didn't give an opinion on well, having got past eight one, do the the prepayment rule apply? And if those prepayment rules apply, you're then starting to get a deduction from August twenty twelve over the course of ten years. And it would be a drip fed over that period. That's right. Mm. That directly takes you to the question of how do I get this deduction? Yeah, 2010 was eight years ago, 2012 was six years ago. Presuming everyone is a complying taxpayer and they've lodged their tax returns and got their assessments, four-year period of review review for assessments, two-year period in some cases, you're well out of time. So the commissioner has got to, if he gets an objection or something, he's got to then make a decision to treat it as being in time. And the practice statement that the commissioner has on late lodgement of objections is specifically in relation to court cases, is if the court case is decided and you're just out of time, then that's a factor of treating you as being in time. Okay. Not just out of time here. This is years 2020, later. 2010 is not just over four years ago. So there's a real question for the ATO in terms of how he's going to administer the tax system here. Now, there are some taxpayers who got deductions at the outset. They got private rulings or what have you. There were some who got... Uh, 4880 type of black hole expenditure because of you know, the arguments they put to the tax office at the time. So there's all sorts of different outcomes that different taxpayers have. Two taxpayers in the same situation should get the same tax outcome. So there's a real integrity question for the tax law here, which is now sort of back in the commissioner's court as to how he's going to deal with it. Graham, I think what's evident with this case is Decades on, we are still having detailed conversations about whether an amount of outgoing and expenditure is on revenue or capital account. So this issue doesn't go away. No, it doesn't go away. I mean, there's issues everywhere you look on this. And I think back to the CityLink case from many years ago, the Transurban case about the amount that incurred and hadn't yet paid, and again, whether that was revenue or capital in nature. So these cases go all the way to the High Court. That's right. Yeah, and then the the tax office has spent the last 20 years trying to get courts to read down CityLink because they don't like the precedent that it sets. Now, in this particular case, the judges said CityLink doesn't apply. So on that ground, the tax office would be content, but on the broader picture, who knows? We'll find out. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion. All right, 100A. Now, this is not specifically case law, but it's a provision that's been around since 1981, and I'm talking about reimbursement agreements, where very broadly a trust sends the profit in one direction but sends the cash in another. And under 100A, which is an anti-avoidance rule, the commissioner can deem that the beneficiary who is allegedly presently entitled to the set amount is in fact not presently entitled and the commissioner can assess the trustee under 99A instead. Now, it's been used sparingly over the years and and the cases that I've seen where it has been applied, it's been applied quite effectively by the commissioner. And I can think of cases, for example, like Raffland and Idlecroft. But in recent years, it's gained a little bit of momentum in terms of being a topic of conversation. Now, the ATO's made some remarks about it. We had issued a a number of years ago a a fact sheet, I'm going to call it. It's not a a binding ruling, Mm. setting out some examples and and scenarios where they did or did not have a problem with what was going on. But there were some recent comments made by Anna Longley, Assistant Commissioner of the Tax Office at the Tax Institute Tax Forum last week. And 
and I'm talking about um, uh, mid-October. So I just wanted, could you make some comments on where you see our uh, conversation going with 100A? I understand the ATO is going to be providing some further guidance on this, and a big part of the, the issue is what is an ordinary commercial or family dealing because that is one of the carve-outs, but we have no definition of that. Exactly. So, yes, I heard Anna speak as well, and it was quite interesting. I think there's there's a couple of things to note. One is that the tax office are working actively on providing some expanded information about how they're going to treat 100A. Out of the um, out of the section, there's really two areas broadly that I think would ex- be exercising the commissioner's attention. The first is one that I think there's a more of an aspect of the ordinary family or commercial dealing aspect, and that is the situation where a family discretionary trust makes a distribution to a family member and may or may not pay that money promptly to the family member. So the typical example situation that is used here is the the university student who's not earning a great deal of money and is still living at home and getting supported by the family uh, is in receipt of a distribution. And let's call it, say, about $18,000 just as a random number. That just might... a rough random figure there, yeah, I don't know why I thought of that, but at any rate. So if they're getting $18,000 of distribution and that's their only income, then they're not going to be taxable on that. But if the money is not actually paid to them or the money is paid, to, say that the family trust draws out, uh, draws a payment out to make the electricity payment for the home or pays the rates or pays the internet bill or the, you know, the, the, the streaming service bill or whatever it happens to be, and that is put against that individual's loan account. With their consent? Well, sometimes with and sometimes without, sometimes with consent after the event. Um, then the tax office is thinking about whether that really is an ordinary family dealing. Now, a lot of people would who listen to that last sentence would go, of course it is. That's very common. It is very common. Uh, but the commissioner is is uh, is thinking about whether it is outside what he views as being ordinary or commercial dealings. And that, that leads you to a practical outcome of, well, does that mean that I've got to have the trust pay an amount and then have the individual pay the electricity bill or have the individual pay the streaming service bill? Or if it's really obvious and I pay them on day one or a particular day and then on day three after they've got cleared funds in their bank account, they shift that money to the to mum and dad's bank account, is that going to be a part for a type sham or is the commissioner going to say, well, that you were never really intended to pay them. It was just a conduit to get it to mum and dad. 100A still applies. Well, this is the next thing I was going to ask you that I've frequently heard over the years, distributions made to the adult child and then under the table, they pass the cash back to their parent. Yeah, so absolutely. is this classic 100A or is this an ordinary family dealing? That is that is the million dollar question. Perhaps at some point in the future we will be talking cases again and there'll be a case on this. Who can tell? But the the more egregious issue in this in this space is where uh, parents put in, say for example, the 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 child has been to a, a private school or had some other expense that they've built up a credit loan account over the years that they owe the trust money because the trust has paid for the school fees or the dentures or the, the end of season trip or whatever it happens to be. And those distributions when they're 18, 19, 20 and going through university are used to offset monies that they're supposed to owe the trust. I think taxpayers have a real problem there as well because if I was a commissioner, I'd be saying, well, prove to me that it's not your responsibility as the parent 
to pay if you've chosen for your son or daughter to go to a school, isn't it your responsibility to pay their school fees? How is it the trust lending them the money for this? 12-year-old to go to year seven at whatever school. I've often had this conversation with training clients. So I'm of the view that I don't think the child has a liability or a contractual obligation to the school. They haven't chosen to go there. Their parents have decided to send them there. And when they're 12 and go to year seven, they're not of a legal state where they can conclude a contract because they're not old enough. So how do you get there? Agreed. So my view is it's the parent's liability to the school or the parent's uh, contractual obligation to the school and not that of the child. Yeah, and if you look at the invoices, they won't say, yeah, they won't, little be, Johnny. They won't be in little Johnny's name. They'll be in the parent's name. No question. Look, look, Graham, another issue which I'd like to raise, and this might all resolve itself by virtue of a Labor announcement. Early this year, Bill Shorten was talking about a minimum 30% tax rate that would apply if a discretionary trust distributes to an adult beneficiary. Now, we've long known about the, the penal rates that apply to minors out of a discretionary trust, the, the $416. But what you're describing at the moment is the, the adult child gets this random figure of, say, $18,000, mm. and they're able to use the tax-free threshold. Now, if ALP has their way and if they form government and this is passed through the parliament, then this won't be possible under those rules anyway. Yeah, well, the announcement doesn't really quite tell us whether the 30% is going to be creditable, like, say, withholdings from wages. And so if it goes to an individual and there's a 30% tax credit in there, they'll get that back like wages or like, say, refundable franking credits. Uh, so we don't really know where that's going to end. But if mum and dad are on a tax rate greater than 30%, the yeah, the, the adult beneficiary living in the, in the bedroom and eating all the food out of the fridge is still an attractive tax outcome for them. Agreed. And we don't know the mechanism as to whether it's a withholding tax or a tax at source or how the, the amount's going to flow through to the beneficiary. So we need that detail. That's but right. It's just a thought because if we've got 100 issues with these adult children being used uh, in some cases to soak up tax-free thresholds, um, that may not be as, uh, as attractive in the future because that may not be possible. Exactly right. The second issue that comes out of the 100A, which is not something that ordinary family or commercial dealings can potentially apply to really, relates to situations where you have a discretionary trust that owns a company that's a beneficiary and the, the trust distributes to that company who the next year pays that distribution back out as a dividend for the trust to then distribute back into the same company at the end of that year. And those sorts of situations are done so that arguably so that there is no UPE that can turn into a Division 7A loan. We would loosely call this a washing machine. That is what the tax office certainly call it. <laughs> so the, the funds wash back and forth between one side of a tub where the trust is and the other side where the company is and just rotate around and around. Well, when say around and around, I've done some modelling on this and... Uh... Those listening to me, I can't see my hands. But if you can imagine starting off with a very small circle and getting bigger and the spiral gets bigger and bigger because it compounds every year. Yeah, assuming every year the trust has got some income, it turns from uh, a very small whirlpool into something that could swallow ships. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that sort of stuff is seen by the tax officers being fairly in the, in the realm of there's no commercial reason to, to do this. Why you else must are you doing it? You must therefore be doing it for a tax purpose. And 100A on its own, 
on its own uh, words would be enough to apply. So the tax office, I think, if they looked at it, would firstly go 100A and secondly then say, well, show us the commercial purpose and if you can't, then part for A would, as a backup, apply. So those sorts of scenarios, I think, spell real danger. I also make the observation that 100A doesn't have a sole or dominant purpose test built into it like part for A does. So to some extent, it's a, a lesser threshold that the ATO needs to meet to apply it. Correct. Correct. So thank you, Graham, for joining me today. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest a future topic or speaker, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. 